When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello there and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian and you are listening to episode 147 of the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast. I am so happy you're here. Thank you for joining me. On today's show, we are discussing how climate change impacts human health. And more specifically, we're discussing how human health is set to degrade as the effects of global warming and climate change manifest themselves in the coming decades. My guest today is Dr. Jay Lemery. Dr. Lemery is a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He is also chief of the section of wilderness and environmental medicine and faculty in the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at the Colorado School of Public Health. Now, I should say right off the bat, (laughs) this is probably the first time I've ever had to say this, but this show comes with an advisory, let's say. My conversation with Dr. Lemery today is not as upbeat and action-oriented as most of my shows usually are, this can feel like a little bit of a doom and gloom conversation. So if you are like me and eco-anxiety tends to hit you hard, or if you have hit play but you are already not having the greatest day, I definitely want you to listen. There is so much, and when I say so much, I mean so much valuable information in my interview today. But just know going into it, The interview today can at times feel a little bit heavy. Now, be sure you stick around to the end of the episode today because I have not only an eco tip, but also a little discussion about the future of this podcast, where it's going. So again, stick around for that, please, at the end of the interview. Just a little hint here. Google podcasts. So if you're listening on an Android phone, Google tells me, listeners, how many of you get to the end of my episodes. And I was shocked and surprised to realize that it is not so many of you. Tisk tisk. So if you have never listened to <laughs> the end of an episode, make today be that day, my friends. I hope you enjoy the interview with Dr. Lemery. Dr. Lemery, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to talk about the connections between climate change and human health. How are you? Great, thank you. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of what we're talking about today, please introduce yourselves to my listeners. Who are you and what do you do? So my name is Jay Lemery. I'm a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 
I practice emergency medicine. I'm a physician and I work on climate and uh, climate change and human health science policy. I'm wondering straight off the bat, you know, climate change is a looming threat to humanity. It's on many people's minds, but is it on the minds of people in the medical community? And when I ask that, what I'm trying to get at is, is the medical community paying attention to climate change as a threat? You know, it's a great question. Um, I think generally, no. I still think there's a conspicuous absence of clinicians that really understand this, can articulate it, and can act on it. I think a lot of it has to do with physicians are busy like everyone else, and the information that links climate change to health is still it's still elusive. You know, it's um, it, it doesn't it doesn't get out there in headlines. Um, and even amongst medical education channels, there's still a lot of formidable barriers to dissemination. So how did you find yourself interested then in climate change as it relates to health? So early in my career, I got involved in wilderness medicine, which is the art and science of taking care of people in remote and austere places. And through my work there, I got, became in contact with earth scientists who were doing actually the work that was explaining how climate change, you know, was affecting um, the uh, environmental uh, changes within the, within the planet. Um, and along the way, um, I began to see that linkage between climate change and the impacts on human health. And for me, it was obvious that this was something that we as clinicians needed to, to pay more attention to. Um, and to get more involved in the conversation. Um, and as I looked around and did some investigating, I realized there weren't many people talking about it. And so I began to get more involved. And the deeper I got in, the more work I realized we needed to do. And that's how I got started um, in the field and began to use my uh, position as a, at an academic medical center to, you know, to research, to understand, to educate, and get the word out. Um, to not only the public, but also to fellow clinicians. Hmm. I've heard you mention before that global warming might not be the best term for what this planet is experiencing right now. And you instead suggested the term global weirding, which I loved. (laughs) Could you please explain what global weirding is and why you think it's a better term than global warming? Sure. And I'm going to credit uh, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe at Texas Tech for that one. Um, And, you know, it it really explains that it's not just a warming planet where the greenhouse effect is just making temperatures go up. What we're really doing is we're energizing the planet and energizing weather systems. And what that does is it makes the weather not just warmer on average, but also much more unpredictable. So that means droughts. That means increased intensity and duration of wildfires. It means bigger and more dramatic downpours and tropical cyclones. So our hurricanes are happening more frequently and they're more intense, causing more damage. So when we think about it in that perspective, I think it's much more accurate. And it also explains erratic patterns in the weather. You know, we've seen a lot, particularly in the Northeast in the U.S., where unseasonable snowstorms are happening. And 
you know, people who maybe aren't paying attention say, oh, how can there be global warming? It's snowing out and it's late April, when in fact, um, that actually is predictive. The global, the the uh, climate change is actually making weather much more unpredictable. So that's very consistent um, with what we're seeing. Hmm. Well, when the average person thinks about climate change and global warming, I'm willing to bet that the first weird thing that's going to come to their mind is, of course, excess heat. So let's start there. How will a hotter planet affect human health very specifically? Well, it's a great question. So we think about excess heat and hotter temperatures. One thing I think about is vulnerable workers in already hot places. There's good data to tell us that certain parts in the Middle East for huge swaths of the day, for many months, it will be physiologically impossible for a uh, human body to, to cool, to keep themselves cool without external means like air conditioners or fans. And that's really dangerous. So just, just being outside could be a, a detrimental or, or to one's health or even a lethal event. And these are vulnerable workers lots of the times, right? People that are... Um, day laborers are often, you know, poor socioeconomic groups. We've seen something analogous in Central America and South Asia, where field workers are now having this mysterious disease of, um, of kidney toxicity and, and kidney failure when they're very young ages in their thirties and forties. And th- these are lethal and, you know, lethal diseases when it happens to a field worker, because there's no good access to medical care and certainly no reliable access to dialysis, right? So um, again, we're seeing those workers uh, suffering huge medical issues from extreme heat. And then uh, heat waves are going to be well beyond historical extremes when they happen. We often look at what happened in 2003 in Northern Europe as an example of what can happen when a heat wave hits even a resource-rich place like Northern Europe, well beyond historical extremes. Um, And there, you know, 30,000 people died. And many of them were just older people who didn't know uh, that they, you know, how to cool off. They're in fifth floor walk-up apartment buildings where they've never needed air conditioning before. Their neighbors didn't know it was time to check on them. and, And so it really caught everyone off guard. So those are the vulnerabilities that we're talking about you know, an extreme heat. It's just one of those things where um, it really can hit the elderly and those with other medical comorbidities much harder than young, healthy people. Mm, That's a really important point. You mentioned the field workers, the outdoor laborers, but uh, you also mentioned elderly populations being much more susceptible to heat-related issues. I'm wondering, though, if the average American with air conditioning should be worried about increased temperatures in the future. Well, it's a good point. Um, I guess the question is, uh, you know, if you have the ability to, to stay cool and you have air conditioning, are you really at risk? I think there's a larger question there, which is, to what degree are we willing to tolerate an unhealthy environment? when people can't be outside because it's a health risk um, and everyone understands those, that heat wave 
that lasts maybe two weeks in anyone's anyone's hometown. But when those heat waves now are six to eight weeks, and there are times of the day where if you're old or on lots of medicines, if if that's a, a big health risk to you, I think the larger question is, is that is is that something to be worried about just because we can sit in our air conditioned rooms? I would say yes. I think that that is something we should take pause and say, okay, what is it that's happening? And are we in a position to change it? Perhaps more fundamentally, what's the risk of this? And is this now exceeding our risk tolerance to the point where we should reflect on our behaviors that perhaps got us there in the first place? Hmm. Another effect of a changing climate is, of course, something that we're seeing up and down the West Coast right now, which is fires. I'm wondering, aside from the obvious health concerns associated with fires, why else should we be concerned about our health as humans if fires become more and more commonplace? So when we talk about wildfires being more intense in duration and outright intensity, you know, we've seen the horrible destruction that happens to the local communities and the, um, the place where the fires actually are. But there's a much larger health risk that affects, you know, frankly, millions of people. And that's the degraded air quality that we've seen over huge swaths of the American West. That's a big deal if you have pre-existing lung conditions like chronic obstructive lung pulmonary disease or um, heart disease or congestive heart failure or anyone who's oxygen dependent, anyone who suffers from asthma. There are you know hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the fire. The air quality can be so bad that it's a risk to go outside and you know breathe all that particulate matter that's still suspended in the air. So air quality is is really sort of the after effect of wildfires and it and it's um and it spreads much you know much beyond the actual area of the fire itself. We cannot have a discussion about climate change without discussing rising sea levels and increased weather events like hurricanes and heavy downpours. So I'm going to ask you all about how floods and rising sea levels are set to impact human health after a quick word from this week's sponsors. The Sustainable Minimalist Podcast is supported by Forager Project. Forager is a family-owned, 100% organic, plant-based food company dedicated to improving the health of both humans and the planet. Their hero ingredient, organic cashews, creates the creamiest base for its yogurts, kefirs, and sour cream. My daughters love their yogurts. My daughters are partial to the vanilla. I'm a bit more partial to the strawberry. As a mom, I am thrilled that Forager's yogurts contain all the probiotic goodness of traditional yogurt without the dairy. And as an aspiring plant-based chef, I appreciate that Forager offers dozens of vegan recipes for free on their website. Forager Project believes in the importance of a healthy democracy, and so they have shifted their packaging to say, vote on November 3rd, to inspire Americans to vote in the upcoming presidential election. Forager also has voting resources and information for you at www.foragerproject.com forward slash vote 
and on social media at Forager Project. And we're back. I want to pick up this conversation where we left it off discussing floods and rising sea levels. Dr. Lemery, what are the concerns as they relate to human health with sea rise and flooding? And why should people who are living on the coasts, which is a large percentage of humans around the world, why should people who reside on the coasts be particularly concerned? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so sea level rise around coastlines is... Um is a real health threat because, you know, and this is very easy science, right? When the melt of huge ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica enter the ocean, right? That's, it's, it's somewhat easy to, to calculate the displacement. And, you know, that's something that is very concerning because the trajectories now mean we're going to be seeing a lot of sea level rise for the next several hundred years. And if you live on the coast, you know, as huge percentage of the world's population do, at first, it'll be storm surges and maybe contamination of groundwater, but then it's going to progress to outright flooding. Um, and so major metropolitan areas underwater, I mean, we've seen this already with, you know, in Miami and New York with storms. And um, frankly, these these places are just going to be uninhabitable as the sea water encroaches upon them. So forced displacement from climate change is a huge driver of ill health when People are forced to move, leave their jobs, leave their families, their neighborhoods, their access to healthcare, and move someplace else. This is um, you know, extraordinarily disruptive um, for people and can undermine their health significantly. I can assume that you are also referring to mental health, correct? That's right. Yeah, mental health is a something that can happen acutely, where uh, the acute storm event. Um, and people or a fire, people losing their, their homes and their, their domiciles is extraordinarily stressful, obviously. But then of course the adjustment disorders that happen after that are real, particularly if they've lost their jobs or loved ones or pets, um, certainly their homes. And if they're forced to move, so mental health is something that is, um, is an undercurrent or denominator to all these stressors that we've been talking about. Hmm. You mentioned stress, and I must say, to be honest, this conversation is giving me a lot of stress right now. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack, but I want you to talk to me about droughts and food. I think we know, everybody knows that droughts are bad for food production, but talk to me about the connection there between droughts and undernutrition or perhaps even malnutrition in humans. Yeah, I mean, you know, food insecurity is a big deal because what we're seeing is with with the changes to global weather and increased average temperatures, people have said, well, you know, that if you're a farmer in Canada or or Russia, you know, it's going to be much warmer. They can make up for the the losses in the tropics, but that's just actually not true. Um, the global uh, protein yields are expected to to decline. You know, production go down. These places, um, remember the weather is becoming more unpredictable and they don't have more sunlight in the Northern latitudes. You can't make up for that. So these are, it's actually a fallacy to think that. And when food security is undermined, you know, in resource rich places like the U S we have lots of buffers. Um, we're still vulnerable. We have lots of buffers, but you know, when you are in, um, developing nations, you know, a drought can be just devastating. 
And when you think about um, undernutrition or even malnutrition for children, um, that sets them up for a lifetime of chronic disease because their their bodies never form properly and they never um, had the good health to to you know to live a robust life. And so that that's a real tragedy that you know can last decades from um, from food insecurity. Hmm. Okay, I want to talk to you about water quality, and I want to talk to you about insects. Let's go first with water quality. Water is essential, right? So explain to me why and how our water supply may be impacted by climate change. I mean, water insecurity is going to be undermined by climate change. You know, you have droughts happening more frequently, right? So that disturbs the integrity of potable water. But then you have things like extreme downpour events from, you know, supercharged weather. You know, one of the bedrock principles of public health has been, you know, where we eat, where we grow our food and where we go to the bathroom, we, we keep them separate. And on a macro level, when you have these big downpour events, they act as, you know, blenders over a geographic area and can disturb the integrity of the water supply where now you've got fecal contaminants, E. coli in the water supply. And that is, um, you know, it can cause lots of disease. And this is not theoretical, right? I mean, we, we see uh, diarrheal outbreaks from flooding all the time across the world. And diarrhea is still one of the leading causes of death for children under five years old worldwide, right? So this is a big deal. And it's something that, you know, will be a force multiplier in years to come. I just want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. I think you're saying that after a downpour or a hurricane, perhaps, the systems are what, overloaded in such a way that drinking water is contaminated by septic water. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So even in places with, with good sewer systems, I remember in New York, you didn't, you know, everyone knew don't drink the water, you know, five minutes after a big summer downpour because, because the pumps would be overrun in the sewer treatment facilities. But in places without sewer treatment facilities, then it's just a field. And when those fields flood and they run off into the nearby well or water supply, I mean, there's, there's no um, uh, infrastructure to sort of keep those areas separate. So that's a, that's an example where, you know, a downpour, which just mixes up, um, you know, again, the, the agricultural fields with the communities, with the, um, you know, the, the, pl- you know, the, the places of bathrooms or latrines or whatever, um, when all that get mixed, mixed up, I mean, that's a recipe for a big diarrhea outbreak. Oh, goodness. I need to <laughs> stock up on some more water, I think. But the last concern I am quite interested in because it hits close to home literally, is the insect question. I am aware that longer summers will increase the amount of time that mosquitoes, let's say, can live in the Northeast. And last year, I've mentioned on the podcast before that a five-year-old in my town contracted Tripoli from a mosquito. So this is serious. We don't really go out so much past dusk. But I'm wondering... What do we need to be concerned of when it comes to insects? 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you look at the world, you know, one of the great truisms is that, you know, in, in the cooler parts of the world, tropical diseases have been held at bay. And that's changing. So when we look at, for instance, the southern U.S., we know that the areas where tropical diseases could exist, you know, the Gulf Coast, that's moving further north. And with that comes, um, you know, and that's happening across the world in places of higher latitude and higher altitude as vector-borne diseases can thrive in these warmer temperatures. So malaria, tick-borne diseases, you know, a dengue, things that carry huge burdens of disease on populations around now moving into areas that have of historically naive populations. So it just basically means the spread of more tropical diseases to more people. Hmm. Okay, so this has been a doom and gloom <laughs> conversation. So I do have to ask you, is there anything that we can be doing right now to offset what may come for health in the coming decades? Is there anything at all we can be doing? Yeah, great question. I mean, I, I think there's so much coming down the pike when we think about renewable um, um, in, in the promise of you know, decarbonizing the economy. That's, that's a really big deal. My sense is that when people say, what can we do? It's one, it's educate yourself on these risks and share them. Because if we can change our collective risk assessment, then we can have meaningful conversations on policy. And that's really important because I think there's a lot of nuances and there's a lot of um, debate to be had to how to have sensible energy policy. But if huge swaths of our population don't even think there's a problem. We just have no hope. Certainly, um, you know, our policymakers should be held accountable across the board. So things like voting are extremely important. But then there's, you know, other industries that everyone can support, you know, whether it's going out and not buying a gas guzzling uh, truck, but consider buying a, um, a hybrid or an electronic vehicle. I mean, these technologies are changing you know, every year. And I think that when it comes to investing in them, you know, people put a huge chunk of their savings, right, to buy an automobile. I think that that's something that could be very impactful and that can shape the marketplace um, towards that. If, if people value those sort of purchases, then, um, then the economy will follow. Dr. Lemery, I know you have a book out that goes into much more detail than we could ever even begin to cover on this 30-minute show. So please tell my listeners where they can find it. Yeah, thanks. It's called Enviromedics, and I wrote it with my mentor, Dr. Paul Auerbach from Stanford. And um, it's just, it's findable on all the, on the World Wide Web. Um, we made up the name Enviromedics, so it's a, uh, you think you have to make sure you spell it right. <laughs> but it's not there. I will link to it for ease for my listeners in this week's show notes. But I just want to thank you so much for taking your time coming on the show and sharing your knowledge. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. Real pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks again. I so hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Jay Lemery over at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. I have linked to his book, Enviromedics, in this week's show notes if you are interested. And those show notes, by the way, can be found at www.mamaminimalist.com forward slash 147. Okay, let's get on to the good stuff. I hope you're still with me. 
you may have noticed in the past few weeks, I have had not one, but two sponsors for most of my episodes. And when I started this podcast, the goal was always to provide quality and free content to my listeners. So never make the listeners pay for quality information, kind of like public radio, right? That's the idea I had in my head. I would make money off of the for-profit companies wanting to get in front of my audience, right? Makes sense. Well, I am a podcast listener myself, and there are two pet peeves that I have when listening to podcasts in my own personal life. The first is too long of an intro. I can't stand intros that are too long. And the second is too many ads. So on the one hand, even though having two ads per episode is making this podcast financially feasible for me, on the other hand, I'm worrying whether having two ads per show is degrading your experience listening to this show. So is two ads degrading the quality of the show, essentially? Phew. So that's the question that's on my mind. So I'm toying with the idea of a membership-based model in place of one or perhaps even both of those ads in the middle of the show. The membership model would be like a Patreon where select members who feel as though they want to support the show would give $2 or perhaps even $5 a month to do just that, to support the show. The benefit to that would be less or perhaps no ads. And another benefit to that would be you would receive, if you did feel compelled to support the show, some sort of bonus something. I haven't worked that out yet. That's where you come in. So my question for you today is, it's a two-part question. The first part is, A, would you be willing and interested in giving 2 or $5 a month to support the show in place of ads? And the second question is, if yes, what would you want extra? Would you want bonus episodes? Would you want early access to episodes? Would you want one-on-one calls with me? What would make it worth it for you? So those are my questions. I'm going to start a thread in our private Facebook group, Sustainable Minimalist, where you can participate in this poll. Your response is not binding. So if you say, yes, I would be willing to support the show, I'm not going to come at you (laughs) with an invoice. It's not like that. I'm just trying to gauge listeners' reaction. Now, if you don't have Facebook, you hate Facebook, totally get it. Either reach out to me on Instagram or send me an email. I will put my email in this week's show note as well so that we can really hear from everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this soapbox moment. Let's get right into this week's eco tip. This week's eco tip comes from Susan. Susan wrote to me with a whopping nine eco tips. And I just want to thank you so much, Susan, for taking the time to write me this email. I appreciate you spreading the sustainable minimalist inspiration. So I'm just going to cover one of your tips today. I'm going to spread them out because this episode is so long to begin with. But the one that made me laugh out loud and laugh out loud in a good way was your tip of wearing sweatpants. (laughs) Genius, right? I love sweatpants. I love yoga pants. Oh my gosh, best things in the world. But Susan's tip essentially was don't rush as the weather colds. Don't rush to turn your heat up. Instead, go through your drawers, find that pair of really warm sweatpants and put them over your pants. So for me, it's yoga pants. I live in yoga pants or running pants. Put the sweatpants over the pants and therefore negate the need to turn up 
the heat. I love it. I'm going to do it right after I sign off here. Thank you so much, Susan. Your tip reminds me that sometimes it's the simplest things that really go the furthest because what on earth is the point of heating up an entire house if another layer will do the job? So thank you so much. All right, y'all, are you still with me? (laughs) Thank you in advance to everybody who is going to log on to Facebook or send me an email. Tell me what your thoughts are about a membership-based model. I appreciate you. I appreciate you listening all the way to the end here. We're at like minute 40. Oh my goodness. Have an amazing week. Stay home. Stay healthy. Take care, my friends. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.